Every time I walk through a cemetery, I'm reminded of it. Every time I'm driving down the streets and I hear a siren and see those flashing red lights, whether it's an ambulance, police car, fire truck, I'm reminded of it. Every time I walk through those uh, freshly polished hospital corridors and listen to the squeaking in my shoes, I am reminded. Every time I sit weeping with a family who's going through the horrors of a divorce, I'm reminded of it. Every time I turn on the television news, I'm reminded that there is something terribly wrong around here. That in spite of everything that we've been seeing in our study of Genesis about God's goodness and God's power and God's love for us, everything that we see about his creation and how perfect his creation is and all that he did, and in spite of all of that, we look around us and we see wars and we see abuse and we see crime and, and we see death and we see sickness and we're reminded that somewhere along the line, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. We looked at chapter one of Genesis, we saw... Well, let's see if you remember. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Foundational verse for the entire Bible. We've been remembering it every week as we go back. We looked at this incredible creation in the beginning, and we saw in chapter 2 of Genesis what life was like in paradise, what life was intended to be like, what it was like before we messed it up, what it was like before things like fear and doubt and shame and worry and death were introduced to the system. And we saw that it was an unbelievable paradise beyond what any of us really could imagine. This week we get to chapter 3 where we're going to see that that paradise did not last. And that, that what ultimate freedom man was given was, was sacrificed and the result was a terrible fall. And so this begins to address that gigantic question that people have been asking for all time. If, if God is so good and creation is his idea and he made it all to work, then why is it all so terribly broken? What is wrong? What has happened to mess up what God seemed to put in place with a good vision in his heart? What's wrong with this world? It was perfect. It was it was without any of those negative things that we've been talking about. No shame, no death, no fear. And now it's not. And this is important because it's not just a theological idea. Until we get the answer to that question of what went wrong, we will never have a chance to even begin to ask the question, how do we fix what's wrong? Is there a solution to what's wrong? Because it's very, very easy to think the wrong problem is the problem. You're going to hear about this a lot because the next few weeks lead up to an election, right? 
So you're going to hear all about what people think is the problem. And whether it's a proposition that is proposed to fix the problem or whether it is a politician who is going to fix the problem. If you ask a politician, and I have nothing against politicians, I pray that God will put more and more godly politicians into service and office all around our land because we desperately need it. But if you ask a politician in general what's wrong in our society, they will say the other party is what's wrong with our society. That's the general answer that you get. Um, if, you, if you say... You know, hey, listen, the, the problem is poverty. And if there wasn't so much poverty, then there wouldn't be so much crime. There wouldn't be so many broken families and all that. The problem is poverty. What we got to do is fix the poverty problem. Or you say, no, the real problem is racism. I mean, if it wasn't for all the racism, our nation wouldn't be so divided. There wouldn't be people hating people for no reason. And our society would be a much safer, much more loving place. We got to somehow do away with racism. Or some people say, no, what we really need is just better laws. If we just had the right laws on the books, or maybe the right judges to interpret the law the way we want the law interpreted, then maybe that would be the solution. Somebody else says, listen, we could talk about all these problems all day, but until we solve the problem of abortion in this country, we're never going to get past any of these things and there's going to be a curse on our nation. And somebody else says, no, no, it's really a financial issue. If we could just handle the finances and get the economy humming again, everything would be fine. Somebody else goes, yeah, you go ahead and do that. But if we don't fix public schools, then we're never going to get it right, right? And it, it just doesn't seem to matter who you ask. Everybody knows what the problem is. But here's the problem with that. It's sort of like... You go to the doctor because you're having these terrible headaches and blurry vision. What you don't know is that you have a brain tumor. And that's what's causing the problem. To you, the problem is headaches and blurry vision. So the doctor says, listen, it's migraines. We have this great migraine medication. It will clear up your vision. It will take away the pain. Try this. And you try it, but it doesn't get better. And he says, you know, some people don't do well on that medicine. Try this medicine. And you try that medicine, and it doesn't get better. And he says, well, maybe if we try this sort of a stretching and exercise program along with the medicine, and you try that, it doesn't get better. And all you're trying to do is make these headaches go away. All you're trying to do is get your vision cleared up. What you don't know is that tumor growing inside your head is making it worse by the day. And ultimately, you could take all the pain medication in the world and you're still going to die because you're treating the symptom and not the problem. Do you see what I'm saying? That, that's so much of what we see happening in our world today is we notice all kinds of symptoms. All those things I mentioned, they need to be addressed. Those are serious symptoms. But what I'm here to tell you is that if we really want a grasp of this, we're going to have to understand what is the problem? What is the root issue that leads to all of these symptoms that we have such a problem with? Because listen, while it is important for you to vote and it is important for you to read the ballot and understand the propositions and get better politicians into office and all that kind of stuff, uh, that is not going to solve the problem. In Genesis 3, God tells us what the problem is. And he tells us that that problem is the source of all other problems. And then he gives us a hint 
as to what the solution is to that problem. So we're going to dive into Genesis 3 this morning. Hopefully by now you can find the book of Genesis at the beginning of your Bible. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3 and open to verse 1. And I want you to follow along as I read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, before we start to tear this apart, I have to give you a a foundational truth that you may not have walked in here believing, but we need to get this straight. Satan is real. Satan is not a figment of our imagination. Satan is not some mythical personification of evil. Satan is not some cartoon character imp that is standing on someone's shoulder trying to get him to do bad things. Satan is an actual, real being. In fact, Satan is the archangel Lucifer. He was created by God as one of the highest ranking of the angels, And he was created in order to bring glory to God. The scripture describes him as indescribably beautiful. And and he is is brilliant, and he is clever, and he is powerful, and he was created by God to serve a good purpose. But in all of his beauty, and all of his grandeur, and all of his wonder, he began to essentially one day walk past the mirror, apparently. And he went, wow, I'm something. And, and he said, I, I think, in fact, I'm at least equal with God. Why is it that I have to serve God? Why don't I just be on the same level as God? And so he challenged the authority of God in heaven. And as a result of that, he, along with a third of the angels, were cast out of heaven and will eventually be completely dealt with by God. But he's real. And we have to understand that because until we understand that there is a being that is behind temptation and death and sin and fear and worry and shame and all of that other stuff, then we are going to fail to address the actual issue and we're just going to be treating symptoms. So that's something about Satan. Now, something about the serpent in this story. This this serpent, we know almost nothing about. We don't know what the serpent looks like. We don't know how he behaved. We don't know how long Adam and Eve had been interacting with the serpent. We don't know why the serpent talks. I don't know if other animals talked at that time. I have no idea how any of that worked. The scripture doesn't tell us. But we do know this. That serpent was indwelt by Satan himself. In just the same way as Judas was indwelt by Satan at the time that he betrayed Christ, in just the same way that the book of Revelation tells us the Antichrist will be the bodily dwelling of Satan himself in the last days, he was indwelt, he was possessed, if you will, 
by Satan. And when it comes to Satan, the Bible goes on to call him the father of lies, the prince of darkness, the enemy of our souls, the tempter, the thief, the deceiver, and it goes on and on and on with a whole list of names, none of which is very flattering. And he is still active today, just as he was active in the garden. So let's not read this as some fairy tale about the way things were once upon a time in a land far away. Because this same Satan is still at work today trying to thwart God. But one thing is on our side with this. He is unbelievably predictable. He always acts in a predictable way. There's no time in Scripture that we see him referred to in which he is not behaving in the same way. He is always doing the same thing. And all throughout history, he has always done the same thing. The way he worked in the garden is the same way that he worked when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It's the same way that uh, he will be working in the last days. It's the same way that he is working in other parts of the world today. And it's the same way that he is working right under our noses as we don't even notice him very often in our lives today. He indwelt the serpent just as he did Judas, just as he will the Antichrist. And we had better take him seriously. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we get a glimpse of his strategy for destruction. And first of all, let me just blow away a myth. Satan is not interested in scaring you, okay? I know it's, it's Halloween time, and you're going to see scary movies advertised, and they're going to see stories about possessed people and how the devil does all these kind of things, and he terrifies you and makes you run screaming, and, and there are haunted houses you could go pay money so that somebody jumps out from behind a thing with a devil mask on and makes you run. That is not what he's like. In fact, the Bible tells us in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, that he disguises himself. And what does he disguise himself as? Does anybody know? An angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He is not about darkness. He is not about fear. He is not about terror. He is not about going, hey, everybody, look at me. He wears a disguise. He, he is attractive. He, he, he draws you in. He gains your trust. And he fools us because he's always trying to get us to mistrust God. Look how he did it with Eve, right? First of all, he tells her half-truths. And, and, and if you're a parent, you know this already. A half-truth is another word for what? A lie, right? And he loves to tell half-truths. And, and he loves to mislead us in any way that he can. So he tells half-truths and he tries to convince her that he's safe and God can't be trusted. And he starts by asking her a misleading question. Look at verse one again. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It's a misleading question, right? Had God said that? Nope. And she passed the test, sort of. Because she says, no, no, that's not what God said. God did not say that. He said, 
We can eat from any of those trees, but there's a certain tree in the middle of the garden and we cannot eat from it or touch it lest we die. Is that what God said? No. He said you cannot eat from this tree. He said nothing about touching it. Do you see how she's already beginning to get confused? She's already not so, not so sure what is right and what is wrong. And so she didn't get it exactly right. So the confusion's already beginning. And that's when he comes at her with another half-truth. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now, did that turn out to be true or not? Depends what you mean by die, right? Because, because how many of you know there, there's uh, more than one kind of death, right? There's physical death, and then there's what? Spiritual death, right? And that spiritual death is defined as separation from God, inability to relate to God. Remember, he made us in his image a living soul. The whole point being that we could be in relationship to God. A spiritually dead person is not in a, in a relational connection with God. And so you can be spiritually dead even though you're still taking air and your heart is still breathing. breathing. A separation from God. It's... it's um, a curse and the inability to break that curse. That's what spiritual death is. And by the way, just because physical death didn't come instantly doesn't mean it didn't come, right? It did eventually come. The process of dying began at the moment that sin entered the world. So what Satan said seemed kind of true, even though it was actually false, and that's his MO. But then he said more. Look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you understand you're blind? Don't you realize that you don't really know what's going on? What God is doing is putting you under his thumb. He's controlling you. You're nothing but a puppet to God. As long as you obey God, then how can you say that you have any freedom whatsoever? So if you really want to live, what you've got to do is get out from under his thumb, express your freedom. The only way to express your freedom is to disobey God. And then guess what? You'll be just like God. You will be your own God. You'll be answering to yourself. That's the big lie. And that's the lie that he tells all of the time. Every single time you or I gets tempted, the temptation is always the same. And it is the temptation to step in at least for the moment and be my own God. So you're tempted to lie. You know you shouldn't lie, but it just seems to you that if you were to lie, it would make things much better for you. So you go ahead and lie because in that moment, what you're saying is, God, your plan for me is not good enough. I know what's best for me. I'm going to go ahead and step in and be God to myself, at least for right now. And so every time we sin, what we're really doing is we're stepping in and trying to be God in our own lives. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they did come to know good and evil. So again, partial truth. He said, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. You'll get to know good and evil. Because it's one thing to 
intellectually know that if a stove is hot, you shouldn't touch it because it will cause you pain, right? It is another thing to slap your hand down on that burner and then live with the scars for the rest of your life. There is a difference between the intellectual knowledge of evil and the experience of evil. And as of this moment, they had an intellectual knowledge of evil because they knew about this tree and that it causes death, but they did not have any experiential knowledge of evil. So he tells them this big lie. He says, you can be like God, which by the way, was what got him in trouble in the first place, right? So he says something like this, listen, God doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's just trying to hold you down. I mean, you really should be in charge of your own life, shouldn't you? I mean, what do you need God for anyway? Why not just become your own God? And by the way, there's a reason that he tells that same lie over and over and over again. What do you think it is? It works. Because <laughs> we just keep falling for it, right? That's why he uses it. Every time we know what is right and we choose not to do it, every time we know what is wrong and yet we chose to do it, we're using that incredible gift of free will that God gave us as an act of love in order to play the role of God in our own lives. So you, you sit down in the spring to fill out all of that paperwork to do your taxes. And you say to yourself, this is ridiculous. The government gets way too much of this money. This is just stupid. So you know what? If I write off all of this as business expenses, even though it isn't business expenses, I won't have to pay taxes on this, and there won't be any way they could prove it. I'm just going to call this business expenses. When you decide to cheat on your taxes, not that any of you would ever do that, I'm just talking theoretically, but if you were to decide to cheat on your taxes, what you're really doing is you're saying, I will take care of myself because I can't trust God to meet my needs financially. I will be God today with the tax papers. When you choose to cheat on your spouse, what you're saying is, listen, a moment of fleeting thrill would be worth so much more than a lifetime of pleasing God by building a family and being faithful to my spouse. So for now, I'm going to be God. One way or another, Satan is always tempting us to try to be our own gods. And by the way, it never, ever works out the way he says it will, does it? Never. So remember how the book of Genesis begins, right? In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. This is the foundation. There is only one God. The ocean is not God. And the sun is not God, and the mountains are not God, and a little graven image in the shape of an eagle is not God, and a little fat guy with his hands on his stomach who rocks back and forth at the nail salon is not God, right? There's only one, sorry, I shouldn't pick on fat people. Anyway, there's only one God. And not only is a rock not him, and not only is a statue not him, and not only is the sun not him, but you are not him either. 
And when we step in and try to play the role of God, it is the ultimate injustice. It is the ultimate wrong. There's only one God, and nothing's ever going to change that. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is sovereign. So the lie is always the same. Hey, God is holding out on you. Living his way will never be as good as doing it your way. After all, who cares more about you than you? Answer, God. God does. And we say we believe that, but sometimes our actions prove that at least from time to time, we don't. So Satan keeps tempting, and he keeps deceiving, and he'll do it in the way that he tempted and deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, you may be thinking, hey, Doug, you keep saying Adam and Eve, but let's not blame Adam for this because this is an Eve thing, right? We just read this. This is an interchange between that serpent and the woman. This is a woman problem, right? So, so yeah, some of you go ahead and say amen. You got, you got courage. Your wife's sitting right next to you. Um, I can say this kind of stuff. My wife's all the way over there, and she would be embarrassed to elbow me from there. But listen, um, here's what you need to understand. Look at verse 6. When the woman, there she is, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Don't miss that. Don't get in your, uh, in your mind's eye this picture that, that uh, Adam is over laying in the hammock watching the ball game and his wife goes out for some time at the mall and she gets tempted and then comes back and like says, hey, I found this great fruit, bakes a pie and feeds it to him. That is not what happened. What it says in the scripture is that the whole time he was right there with her. And what does the enemy do? He attacks the woman and the husband, who, by the way, was the one who was given the instruction, is standing there and not protecting his family. He is not stepping in and doing what his wife needs him to do in this situation. He is standing back and letting her handle it. Don't be blaming Eve when Adam is the one that carries all of the blame throughout history. Read the rest of your Bible. Every time we are connected to sin, we are connected to sin through who? Adam. Adam. He's the one that bears the responsibility. Now, they both bear the responsibility. The scripture says the woman was deceived, and yet it still says that even though the woman was deceived, you know how I take that? She was deceived. He knew full well what he was doing. And so let's not make this a gender issue of who we're going to be mad at. The fact is that if Adam and Eve had not fallen, you and I would have. Sooner or later, right? Because we have that option and we have a track record that shows what we would do with that. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because we have to understand, Adam and Eve are one, right? We saw that in chapter two. 
And the consequences of sin will affect both of them and will affect all of us. But let's look more closely at verse 6 because it's there that we see the anatomy of temptation and how it works. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate." This is laid out in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. You can write this in your notes if you want, look it up later. There are three areas where humans are very susceptible to temptation. And, and 1 John 2 says, it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's, if you take every temptation, it fits into that one of those categories. It's either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride pride of life. The lust of the flesh is shown right at the beginning. She saw that the tree was good for food. She said, I want some of that food. That, you mean that food that God said you shouldn't have? Yes, I want some of that food. I mean, I really want it, right? And if you're thinking, oh, come on, you can't talk about lust after food, Anybody who has struggled with any eating issues knows that's not true, right? So, so she's dealing with the lust of the flesh here, right? And then it goes on and it says, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. I know in all of the children's books, it's an apple. It doesn't say it's an apple. It's, it's a fruit. And it's some sort of stunningly beautiful fruit, it must have been incredibly colorful and gorgeously shaped, and it was probably dipped in chocolate, <laughs> right? Don't you think? Or at least like breaded and deep fried, <laughs> right? It was stunning to the eyes, and she was drawn to it, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. So she, she knew that it was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, or as Satan said, like God right? That's pride. That's I want to step in and be God. And that is how you will be tempted your whole life. That's where the arrows get aimed. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And it works out differently in different ones of our lives. We all have different stumbling blocks, different areas where we struggle. But this is where you will be tempted. And that's where you can expect Satan to keep firing his darts. So they're tempted, and a decision was made to rebel against God. Let's not say it any softer than that. This was not, hey, let's have a snack. This was, hey, let's be the God of our own lives. They rebelled against God. And we have been living with the consequences of that ever since. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to them and said to him, called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. Now, before we jump into that too much, let me just say two things. First of all, 
just because God asks the question doesn't mean he doesn't answer, right? You got that? What, this is just like with a child, right? And they got chocolate all over their face and chocolate all over their hands. And you go, did you get into the chocolate, right? What you're doing is giving him a chance to do the right thing, okay? So God's asking a question. He never asks a question because he needs to learn. He knows everything he doesn't need to learn. The other thing is you can't hide from God, right? They're, they're hiding from God. And so let's not think that God literally went out to the garden and went, oh, I wonder where they are. And then he said, where are you? Right? Because he didn't know. So let's not diminish God here in this story. Understand his reason for that. But do you remember the way Moses described paradise at the end of chapter two? Here's how he describes it. He says, when I, when I sum up the perfect world, Here's how I'm going to describe it. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right? That was perfection. There's no fear. There's no body image issues. There's no, uh, there's no worry. There's no doubt. There's no abuse. There's no mistreatment of anybody. There's no reason to feel awkward around anybody. There's nothing to hide from and no reason to hide. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It never occurred to them that there was anything weird or strange or uncomfortable about that nakedness or their sexuality. But verse 7 tells us that after sinning, the very first thing that occurs to them is, oh no, I'm naked. And the first thing they do is find a way to cover up their nakedness. They go and gather a bunch of leaves and sew them together and they make some sort of clothing out of these leaves as best they can and they're just trying to cover up. And then they go and hide. Now who are they hiding from? They're hiding from God and they're hiding from each other, right? It's, there's this shame now associated in their relationship. There's this discomfort. There is a little bit of danger now in their relationship. Vulnerability takes on an entirely different uh, face now that sin is an option, right? And so they are hiding from each other. They are covering their nakedness from each other, and then they hide among the trees so that they can be away from God. You see what happened here? Sin created a wall between the man and his wife. And sin created a wall between God and man. Look at verse 10. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam is now afraid of God. He, the, the one who made him, the one who created everything, the one who put him in this paradise, he's now afraid of God. He is afraid to let God have access to him. Let that sink in. How big of a deal is it when you're afraid to let God have full access to you? You shouldn't have to think about it very long because we're all in that boat. We all have these moments where it's like, I just need to get some distance between me and God because there's shame, because there's sin, because I'm not worthy, and I become afraid of God. And so they're hiding from God. It's a ridiculous concept, but we keep doing it. 
And this is just the beginning. It gets worse. Look at verse 11 again. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see what's going on here? This is blame shifting, right? I'm not going to face God and tell him what I did. Instead, Adam says, hey, the woman that you gave to be with me is the cause of this whole deal. So if you got a problem, you should probably talk to her. He throws her under the world's biggest bus, right? <laughs> and, and he says, and, and don't miss what's implied. He doesn't just say, the woman did this. He says, the woman who, by the way, God, you gave me. <laughs> Remember, I didn't order one of these. <laughs> I I just woke up and here she was. And at first, I'll admit, I thought it was cool. But now I'm not so sure because I thought you were doing me a favor, but this is no favor, God. This is your fault, God. And this is her fault, God. You know whose fault it's not? Mine, right? And so God says to the woman, "Uh, what do you have to say for yourself? And she says, the serpent, and where'd the serpent come from? God, the serpent deceived me and I ate, right? So there's this blame shifting. You know what you notice here? Nobody's safe anymore, right? Nobody's got anybody's back here. Selfishness is the rule of the day now. I will protect myself. I will make my life about myself. I will do what I think is in my best interest. You know what that's called? Being your own God, so they, have, they were offered by Satan this opportunity to be your own God, and now they can't stop doing it. Guys, what Satan offers us never pays off in the way he offers it. When we know we're guilty, instead of running to God in confession and repentance, we tend to try to cover up. We tend to try to hide from God and from other people. We don't want other people to know what's going on. The people who should be closest to us, the people who need us, the people who we need the most, we put distance between ourselves. We start blaming. We start arguments. We start making it about something other than what it's about. Let me give you some examples. Crime in the inner city, regardless of what the politicians tell you, crime in the inner city is not a result of poverty. Crime in the inner city, just like crime on Wall Street, is a result of the sinful hearts of people, okay? Now, are there issues that need to be dealt with in the inner city that contribute to people's tendency to commit crimes? Absolutely, and those should be dealt with. But I'm just saying, let's separate the root from the symptoms, right? Here's another one. Women are not sexually harassed by men because they dress provocatively. Women are sexually harassed by men because those men have sinful hearts, right? Here's another one. Politicians are not corrupt because the system is broken. The system is broken because politicians are corrupt. It's a heart issue. 
right? Now listen, in all those examples I just gave you, is, is there issues with poverty that if we could go in and do something about poverty that we could help minimize crime in the inner cities? Of course. Is it true that a woman should choose to dress more um, uh, modestly than seductively? Of course that's true. But that doesn't mean that when she is harassed, she had it coming to her. It's because of the sinful hearts of people. And, and if we think that somehow we could pass a law or get so-and-so into office or so-and-so out of office or get our judge on the Supreme Court or whatever, and that's going to solve the hearts of men, it will not solve the hearts of men. The hearts of men are desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah. So those are all problems, and they, they may be contributing factors, but they're not the problem. The problem is sin. And until we address that problem, we'll never get it right. So the man shifts the blame to the woman. The woman shifts the blame to the serpent. God knows that there is enough guilt for everybody, right? And so because of the warning that he gave, hey, don't do this because you will not like the consequences. Now there are going to be consequences. Let's pick it up. Uh, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the curse upon the serpent. Now we're gonna come back to that, but let's keep going. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field, but by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, those are some dark verses. There are four curses here that come as a direct result of this sin. The first one is the curse on the serpent. We'll come back to that. But first, let's talk about the curse on women. The woman is cursed with extreme pain in childbirth. Can anybody here attest to that? Moms, right? Okay. Um, then Adam is cursed with extremely difficult work. And work is no longer going to be general, generally pleasurable and easy. It is going to be difficult. It is going to be backbreaking. It is going to be by the sweat of his brow that he could put food on his family's table. He's going to have to work a ton of hours. And at the end of his workday, he is going to be spent every time. His job was to be a gardener, and now he's going to be dealing with thorns and thistles and all of that. And then there's the hidden curse. So curse on the serpent, curse on the woman, curse on the man. And what I call the hidden curse is the curse on the family. Go back to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, 
Uh, we're all big people in here, okay? So I don't need to spend any time explaining the connection between pain and childbirth and your desire shall be for your husband. We all get this, right? We know where babies come from. Okay, so she's gonna have pain in childbirth, but she's gonna have this desire for her husband, so she's gonna keep getting pregnant, and there's gonna be more childbirth and more pain and so forth, right? And of course, all of us know from experience that this is how it really works, right? You know, a young couple gets married, and then they spend the rest of their marriage with the woman chasing the man around for more sex, right? <laughs> That's how that works, right? <laughs> oh, not in your marriage? It's not like that? Oh, I, I didn't mean to get personal. Okay. So... So if that's how we read this, this curse doesn't make any sense, right? Our experience tells us we know that the male sex drive is usually much stronger than the female sex drive, et cetera, et cetera, and all of that kind of stuff. So this idea that you will have this strong desire for your husband, like maybe the curse is over, <laughs> right? What is that about? So it, it's important. Sometimes, sometimes it's really helpful. Usually it's just pastors showing off. But sometimes it's really helpful to have access to the original languages. And this is one of those cases. That word desire, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, right? Same word. If you just go over to chapter four on the next page, um, this is where Cain is about to kill his brother and God confronts him about it, right? And uh, pick it up in verse uh, six. Then, this is chapter four, verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, are you angry? And, and uh, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So you see the same kind of sentence structure. Uh, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And here, sin has a desire for you. It wants to master you, but you must master it right? This word desire means desire to rule over, a desire to control. And it's very clear in the Hebrew, and it's not very clear in the English, but, but it really helps us understand this curse. And, and we understand now why this is not just a curse on the woman, this is a curse on the family, right? Because when you combine the curse on the woman and the curse on the man, what you see is this general picture. And I realize that, that not every family is the same, but over the history of the world, this has generally been the case, right? So the man has to support his family. So he goes out and he works all day by the sweat of his brow and breaks his back to try to put food on the table, right? Meanwhile, the wife, after all of this pain in childbirth, is home raising children. Her heart is connected to those children, her, her thoughts are on those children. Everything she's doing is related to that household. And the husband comes back into the house at the end of the day exhausted. And what he wants is a remote control and a beer and no trouble, right? But she wants to do what? Talk. <laughs> she wants to talk. And what does she want to talk about? These children, <laughs> And what I did, and then I wiped Bobby's nose, and then we colored him, you know, and, and the husband's like, ah, right? And, 
And this is where her heart is, and she, she has this investment here. His investment is out here. It's really tough for him to make that emotional connection to his wife and kids that his wife has to the kids. And it just makes more sense because she knows what's going on around here anyway if, if she just leads. And, and she wants to lead. Her desire is for her husband. So again, this may not be the case in every case, but as a general rule, this is how this happens. So you end up with uh, a, a wife who, who may be manipulative or controlling or whatever, and a husband who's all too glad to let her do it. And she's thinking, I wish he would lead a family devotion once in a while. I wish he would just take us to church. I wish he would show an interest to go out and play with the kids in the yard. I wish, I wish, I wish. And she pushes and pushes and pushes and he resists and resists. And pretty soon they're pointing fingers at one another and throwing one another under the bus and their family is falling apart. There's a curse on the serpent, a curse on the woman, a curse on the man, and a curse on the family. And guys, when fathers disconnect from families, when husbands disconnect from families, the results in every culture are always disastrous. In our culture today, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of runaways are from fatherless homes. 85% of behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in detention centers are from fatherless homes. And those statistics go on and on and on and on. So whatever our views are as time goes on and the roles of men and women change and all of that, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to be in any way chauvinistic at all, all I'm saying is, Husbands matter in families. Fathers matter in families. Wives matter in families. And mothers matter in families. And one thing we can see in our culture today is the breakdown of the what? Family. The foundation for all of society. And as a marriage counselor, I could tell you firsthand that the majority of marriages in trouble have something to do with the power struggle between the husband and the wife. The consequences of sin are always bad. Satan never tells us about those consequences. But Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And this is what they're now living out. Look at verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand, take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which it was taken. So he drove the man out of the rest of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim, uh, the east of the Garden of Eden, I'm sorry, and he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. What a tragedy. What began as paradise ended up as prison. Because they believed the lies of Satan. 
that we need to protect ourselves against God and that we're better off being our own God. But it doesn't end on a hopeless note. Remember I said we're going to come back to the curse on the serpent? Go back to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Let your, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This curse on the serpent is that this, there's going to be offspring from this couple. And eventually, the offspring of this woman is going to crush the head. In your translation, might say bruise the head. The literal word there is crush. It would, her offspring will crush the head of the serpent's offspring. The day is coming, God says, when damage will be done to her offspring. And in that process, he'll crush your head. And you go and read the book of Revelation, and you see that there is a serpent there. And that that serpent wants to soar on high. And God tears down that serpent and casts him into the fiery lake. And he is crushed because by his stripes we are healed. So there's great news. The curse is terrible. The result of trying to be your own God never works. But now we've inherited it, passed down from generation to generation, all of us dealing with it, all of us dealing with fleshly temptation, all of us stuck in spiritual death until Christ comes along, gives us the faith to believe and sets us free. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and that more abundantly. He comes to give us spiritual life. He comes to reverse the curse. He comes to give our life meaning and significance. But here's the deal. Only he gets to be God. Only he gets to be Lord. And a life lived that way is going to be fulfilling. A life lived that way is going to have purpose. A life lived that way is going to have significance. And so we stand every time we are tempted at a crossroads where we have a choice. We can choose to trust ourselves to be our Lord. We can choose to believe Satan's lies. And in so doing, we can choose death. Or we can choose to bow the knee and submit our lives to Jesus Christ in that moment and each following moment. And we can let him be Lord. And in so doing, we can choose life. And so my encouragement to you today is wherever you are in your spiritual journey, the offer stands before you, choose life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, as we look at this story and we see our ancestors listening to temptation and believing it, as we see them choosing to play the role of God, even temporarily in their own lives, as we see them struggling to trust you and putting more trust in themselves, and as we see them facing the consequences of that, Lord, it's like looking in a mirror, and we see ourselves, and we realize, Father, that apart from your life-giving presence in our lives, 
we're dead. So we want to thank you for the way you reach out to us even when we wouldn't reach out to you. We thank you for the gift of faith that you give us so that we can even choose to believe in you. We thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercies which are new every morning so that even if we messed up this morning and believed the enemy's lies, there's still hope for us this afternoon because you're a great and awesome God and you're quick to forgive. So we thank you and praise you and we ask you to help us walk in true trust of you. We confess you alone get to be God in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.